that Christians are people of the Word of God, people of this book, people of the Bible. And I love coming here each and every week because what we are is we're not just people of the Word, we're people of the Word together. And so each and every week we come around the Word together as we're called to, as we're meant to, as the people of God, to study it so that we might know God, so we might live in a way that would honor and glorify Him. And so in light of that, would you turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, and we're going to read through the verses this week, starting in verse 5, going through verse 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, starting in verse 5. Hear the word of the Lord. Now if anyone has caused you pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. And indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, help us as your people to gather around your word now and to be equipped to go out and to do good works and to do the works that you have set before us. Help us through this passage to know you and know how we might live in order to honor you. And God, that's what we want for this time and for our lives, that they would be an honor and glory to your great name. Father, help that happen now. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I was over 1,400 feet high when I decided to step outside of a building. This building was the Willis Tower. You might know it more familiar as the Sears Tower. And I wasn't stepping out to like jump off the building. There's a plexiglass case that goes actually outside the building. So if you've ever been there in Chicago, you can step outside the building and look straight down with the glass only below you all the way to the ground. And as I was walking out there, like I, I knew in my head, like I love to look at the heights and, and the, all that you could see in this unique perspective from this view that you could only get at this place. This is the tallest building in America. Right? I can only get this view from here, and I can only see the ground from looking at out this plexiglass thing. But even as my mind knows all these things and is getting ready to enjoy this view, as I started to step out, my knees just like did not want to respond to the direction that my brain was giving them. It's like, it's like my mind knew I was going to be safe, but my knees, they weren't so sure that I wasn't going to fall to the ground. So as I'm stepping out this building, like my, my legs were kind of like not moving the way they normally move. It seemed like what was happening was that I was going against nature. You don't step out of buildings that high and fall down. That's what normally would happen. And so my, my legs, I guess, don't have the eyes that my mind have to see that there's, there's, I'm safe here. It's going to be fine. And actually, what I'm going to receive in return for going out here doing something against the, the nature to, is going to see this beautiful view that you can't see anywhere else. I'm going to be able to see all around this building like I've never been able to see this view before. And I won't be able to see again. This is the only spot where you can do this. Where you can be over 1,400 feet high and look straight down outside of a building. It's an amazing thing. I wanted a part of that beauty. But it went against nature. And so my legs didn't want to move. Of course, I did actually do it. I, I put my willpower in gear and I said, I'm doing it. I'm going out there. I don't know if Catherine did it though. 
She might not have wanted the heights. But I went out there and I saw the view. And it was, it was awesome. It was great. And it was scary all at the same time. But it was beautiful. You know, I think sometimes that when we think about someone who's hurt us deeply. And forgiving them. Forgiving someone that's been so close to us. That has grieved us and pained us. Turning to forgive them seems to go against nature. It's like you know in your head maybe that this is, this is right, this is something I should do, but it just doesn't comprehend with all that you are, and so you're kind of buckled up and you don't want to go all the way through with the process. Because it seems to flow against what should happen. Someone has hurt you deeply, it doesn't seem to be right that you just turn and forgive them. But what we do get in this offer of forgiveness that we can turn to people and give is that we get this freedom. And this beauty that that can't be seen anywhere else until we've granted this forgiveness. So this is what Paul calls this church to do here. Calls us to. He says, as a community, as as a body of believers, as a church, you need to turn to forgive the repentant. That's his main point. Turn and forgive these repentant people or this repentant brother in this case. And what he doesn't do is he doesn't undersell what's going on here. The the grief is real. The pain is deep. It's probably severe. There's scars from what's going on here in the church in Corinth. But forgiveness is still to be granted to the forgiven or for the to the repentant brother. Now it seems that what Paul brings up here in this case, in, in starting in verse five, is he starts to reference a specific situation that they all would have been familiar with at Corinth. But he does so with, with these generalities, with ambiguity, so much so that now we, we look at it, we have no idea who he's talking to, yet the Corinthians probably knew exactly who he was talking about. And we have no idea the offenses that were going on, but they probably knew exactly what he was talking about. And so Paul uses great tact as he addresses this church to turn to forgive this brother. If you look in verse 5, he says, If anyone has caused you pain, he has caused it not to me, But in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. So Paul is calling, he starts off this passage calling us, Even there's some implied calling to us here, that we should take action as a community against sin. That sin is a community problem, it's a church problem. Now, if we were to look at the background, we we don't know exactly what situation Paul is talking about, who he's talking about, and what exactly has gone on. But it seems like maybe when he came, after, after hearing that the church is in disarray, after writing 1 Corinthians... And hearing back from Timothy, the church is still having problems. He goes and visits them with this, known as this sorrowful or harsh visit. And it seems like this situation came up maybe in that visit, where Paul was personally attacked, where Paul was personally put down. Something that was very, maybe even vicious to his character and who he was. And so Paul addresses this situation. And it's likely that he addresses this situation in this harsh letter coming after this and saying, we cannot deal with these kinds of sins. You need to, as a community, take action against this kind of sin. Because here's the reality. Is that sin is destructive. And that sin is painful. And sin divides. It tears apart. And it doesn't just do it for Paul. So let's say this attack was directly against Paul. He is recognizing that this isn't just going to affect me. This is going to tear apart, divide, break apart, cause problems and destruction in the whole body. This is not just going to be destructive for one, it's going to be destructive for all. And as one commentator says, that sin is social. 
Although it's first and foremost defiance of God, there is no sin that does not touch the lives of others. So there's no sin that we can say is not going to cause a problem for other people within this community. Sin affects the entire body. The whole church is going to be affected by sin. So no one can say, you know what, it's my life, and if I want to ruin it, that's my deal, and it doesn't affect you. It's not going to be a problem for you. That's a lie. Sin is going to affect the body. If you're in community with one another, your sin is going to affect other people within that body. It will affect other people. In the body of Christ, there's this closeness so that if one hurts, all hurt. So if there's a a sin going on in one space, one issue, one person, it's going to spread to others. And this time of the year, sickness goes around, and if one of your kids gets sick, I know how some of you act, you like immediately quarantine them. They're like, shut in a room by themselves, throw some water in there, close the door and let them live, right? If they need some medicine, you just toss it through the door or something. Just real quick, they'll be fine. Why do you do that? Because you don't want your other kids to get sick. Because then this starts this whole cycle that may not go off for a while. One kid gets sick, then the parents get sick, then it's back around again, right? It's like never-ending cycle of sickness. And so you quarantine and you've got to get it shut off so the sickness doesn't spread. Because in a family, the sickness will spread. Because there's closeness there. There's this closeness that you just you can't avoid, especially with kids. And they're going to spread their sicknesses to one another. Paul says that a little leaven will leaven the whole lump of dough. So a little bit of sin can go through the whole thing. A little bit of sickness can go through your entire family. Sin is this fire that is never satisfied. It always wants to consume more and more and more. It's always looking to spread. And so Paul is, is calling on them and, and showing that they've taken action against sin because sin is a community problem. This is a church problem. He has to address the community about this, not just an individual. Action has to be taken against sin because the sickness is going to spread. And so sin must be addressed in community and by community. And the good news is, is that we're told how to do this in Matthew chapter 18. In Matthew chapter 18 Jesus addresses what happens, what you're supposed to do, the how-tos of if your brother sins against you. Starting in verse 15 of, of Matthew 18, He says this, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. This is Jesus telling you, this is how you handle sin even within community. Go and tell him his fault. If he doesn't listen to you, take another in the community along with you. And if he doesn't do that, see, you see this implied community here. There's an implied church. You are members of one another. You are together in this. If he doesn't listen to the two of you, tell it to the church. There's people that are all in this. This is a community problem. And the community is to take action here. Paul says of this last step, he says, and Jesus says it in verse 18, whatever you bind on earth will be bound on heaven, whatever you loose on earth will be loose in heaven. But he says, if he refuses to listen to you, let him be as you a Gentile and a tax collector. And Paul says of that step in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 5, he says this, Deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So what we're talking about here is putting the man out of the church, turning him over from the fellowship of Christ, the body of Christ, the church, which is the realm where Jesus reigns and rules. This is Jesus' territory. Throw him out, excommunicate him, move him out to the realm of Satan, where Satan reigns and rules on this earth. Turn him over to him. 
But notice, sin in community is to be addressed because it's going to affect the entire community and the community is to address it. So as a family, as brothers and sisters, we are to be responsible for one another and the sin in one another's lives. So we are to speak the truth in love to one another. We're to care for one another. We're to encourage one another so that this doesn't go on. So that sin really is addressed as a community. Now, I like what one author says, says. It has been remarked that when discipline leaves a church, Christ goes with it. If we fail to address sin as a community, then it's just going to run rampant. And all of a sudden, this name of Jesus Christ that we are representing, who we are the body of, is now no longer being represented in the right way. We're no longer bringing glory and honor to Christ if sin is just let happen. We just think it's okay to do whatever you want and live however you want. That no longer makes you distinct in who you are as a body. No longer the body of Christ. You can be a body surrounded by anything. So if discipline leaves the church, Christ goes with it. Obviously, that would be devastating to someone who is called the body of Christ. If Christ goes out of the church, you are no longer the body of Christ. So for the church to be faithful, action must be taken against sin. It's a community problem that must be addressed by community. And so maybe we need to think about, maybe there's something that we need to repent of. Let's start with us first before we start thinking about other people because there's sin in our lives and maybe we need to repent of that because we know it's going to affect the body. It's not just about us and our life. It's going to affect other people. So maybe there's something we need to repent of. We ought to be living these lifestyles as Christians. This is what the Scripture calls us to. A lifestyle of repentance. Where we know that we haven't arrived. Where we know that we still have sin that's indwelling. It's in us. It's all over. It's our desires. So we want to turn from that as constantly as we see it come up. But we also need to think, is there someone that we need to approach? Is there someone we need to approach who's living in sin? We see sin in them and as a loving brother or sister, can we come alongside them and approach them in their sin as Jesus has called us to? So for the church to be faithful, action has to be taken against sin. And what we want is a community. A community where where sinners are safe. Not my mic. What we want, I'll just keep going, noise is part of it. We've done this a lot, lot worse before in other ways, so this is nothing. What we want is a community where sinners are safe, because that's the reality for all of us, is when we come in, and we come in as sinners. We're sinners, we're broken, we haven't arrived, and we're going to be sinners. We're not going to escape from that until Christ returns. We want a place where sinners can be safe. You can share, you can be open, you can be vulnerable, because sinners are safe here, but what we don't want is for sin to be safe. Sinners can be safe here, but sin never should be. If we want to honor and live for Christ, then our sin should never be safe. And so as a community, this is what we strive for. Sinners, you're safe here. We want you to be here. There's a Savior for you here. But your sin isn't safe. We want you to turn from it and run away from it. And it seems like, as we go back to 2 Corinthians, it seems as if what Paul has called them to, to take action against sin, has happened. It seems like they have taken the right action. So if you look in verse 6, For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. It seems like they've done the right thing. And as a community, they've addressed this sin as a community. Sin has to be addressed by...
by community, in community. But hopefully that's not all that happens. And this is where Paul turns to now. He wants them to turn to forgive the repentant. Forgive the repentant sinner. Because forgiveness and reconciliation, it's a community responsibility. So sin is this community problem, but forgiveness is a community responsibility for us. If there's someone who turns, then we need to turn and forgive. And it appears in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 that the one who was addressing his sin turned from his sin, was repentant of his sin. That means that he saw his sin, he owned up to it, he turned away from it. That's what it means to repent. And so Paul instructs them in verse 7. He says to them, So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Just as sin is a community problem, forgiveness and reconciliation are a community responsibility. Paul is telling him, turn. He wants restoration here. He wants reconciliation. He wants forgiveness to happen for this repentant sinner. He says the punishment by the majority, that's been enough for him. He's been handed over to Satan. He's been pushed out to the realm where Satan reigns and rules. Outside of fellowship. Outside of the the reign and rule of Christ. And it's worked. He's seen his sin and he's turned from it. And so what happens is is there's great danger for repentant sinners to remain in that situation outside of fellowship, in the realm of Satan. This man probably feels the sorrow of painting the entire body, feels the sorrow of sinning against his Lord and Jesus Christ. He feels the, the weight of being outside of fellowship. And as one pastor said, that isolation is the devil's playground. That he's not in a good spot. You don't want to be isolated if you're repentant. You know, turn again and come back into fellowship. Because that is the isolation can be this place where Satan can wreak havoc. The, the Bible describes Satan as this one who's prowling like a lion, seeking someone to devour. And one on them, their own in isolation, that's an easy target. One who's burdened by sorrow, that's an easy target. One who's divided from themselves and will not even be received back into fellowship. That's an easy target. And so the forgiven brother is to be brought back in. We're not going to let them stay there. Don't let another stay there. If you see them, if they've repented of their sin, you bring them back into fellowship. I've always been interested in zebras because they seem like they have nowhere to hide. Like if you've ever been to Africa, like there's nothing that's like, this looks black and white so they can blend in. And they have no, no like strong weapons, like strong claws to tear something. And they don't bite real hard, I'm not thinking. Like their mouths aren't real big. They're not like alligator teeth. Like, I'm just wondering, how do they live? Like, what in the world would a zebra do to fight something off? There's just nothing. They could kick a little bit, sure. But like a lion's not going to be worried about your kicking. And it's not going to take long for that to end. So what does a zebra do to stay protected? How do they stay alive? They seem like an easy target. Their, their strikes, they're not camouflaged, they're not working. So what can they do? Well, it's interesting that their their stripes aren't aren't camouflage for one zebra. But what they do if they're in danger is they they come together. They join together. And so now all of a sudden, you see all this maze of stripes. And if you're like a lion, you have cat eyes, you just see like a huge blob of black and white stripes. You don't see one one zebra on its own that you can kill. So it makes it a lot harder. You don't want to attack something that's a humongous blob of black and white stripes. The one they go after is the one that goes by itself, that can see clearly, can take down easily. So zebras, when they're, they're in trouble, they, they huddle together, they join together. 
For the person to to stay outside the community who's repented of his sin, to remain outside, to be the one on its own is to be in great danger. They need to be joined in to be protected against the attacks of this lion who's prowling around seeking one to devour. We need to join together so that we all kind of look the same and we don't know which one to attack because they're all as one. He needs to be restored and forgiven. And forgiveness needs to be extended extended from this community. Love needs to be reaffirmed. As Paul says in verse 8, I beg you, reaffirm your love for Him. Forgiveness is a community responsibility. It's the church's job to go out and extend forgiveness to the repentant brother. They are the ones to extend out to Him. To forgive Him As he repents of that sin. Community is called, as Paul says in chapter 3 of Colossians, forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you. Now I don't think it's any mistake that as Jesus talks about what we call church discipline in Matthew 18, the the parable he tells right after. Let's not miss in chapter 18 of Matthew that he does tell us how to address sin in a brother, but right after that he also tells us how we should forgive. Because the... Disciples ask him, like, how many times should I forgive? Seven times? Is that, that enough? And Jesus says, much more than that. And then he tells them this parable. If you look at Matthew 18, verse 23, he says this. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle one, one was brought before him who owed him 10,000 talents, a huge sum. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payments to be made. He's in a bad situation. And so the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, a tiny amount, a tiny sum. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. And so his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him. Sounds like a familiar scene, right? Have patience with me and I will pay you. And he refused. And he went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. And when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. And then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all of the debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. And what we see in this parable is that there's this huge debt that's been forgiven. Wiped out, canceled out against the man. A huge debt. And he goes to another who's... Debt against him is so much smaller, and yet he holds him accountable for it, and even puts him in prison. Gives him what he wasn't given. He was shown mercy, and yet he is so harsh with this other servant of his. And the translation for us is that, think about your sin. You have sinned before a holy God. So in other words, that means that your sin deserves infinite punishment. Infinite wrath forever. This is what hell is for. This is what we deserve for our sin. And yet, by the blood of Christ, we are canceled of that debt that we owe. It's a huge debt that has been lifted off of us. We never earned it. We didn't receive it because we deserved it. God just granted it to us because He loves us. Based upon the work of Christ. 
If we understand the weight of our sin and the greatness of our forgiveness, then how can we turn to another who sinned against us? We, who are not infinitely holy and infinitely great and infinitely worthy, and say to them, you have sinned against me and I will hold you accountable for that. It's so hypocritical and it's ridiculous is what it is. And this is what Jesus is pointing out because the church is the community of the forgiven who have been forgiven huge debts and they are to be a community that in light of that extend forgiveness to other people who have sinned against them. And so we need to think about, well, what is forgiveness? I think a good way to say it is it is a canceling of debt. It is giving something freely. It is extending grace. But what forgiveness does is it never excuses or ignores sin. You're not excusing sin when you forgive. You're not ignoring sin when you forgive. You're not doing either of those things. Forgiveness always costs something. It always costs something. Our forgiveness, think about it. We owed a debt that we couldn't pay. An infinite debt that we had no chance or hope of paying ever. Yet God paid that debt at infinite cost the life of His Son. And yet what was extended to us was offered to us freely. We didn't have to earn our forgiveness. It cost God His Son. Jesus died. And yet it was extended to us at no cost. He says, come without money and buy. You can receive this at no cost. In fact, you can't even earn it if you wanted to. You couldn't buy it if you had money. It's extended to us freely. And in that, we are to image that and extend that kind of forgiveness that costs something, but is also extended freely. I like what Tim Keller said about this. He says, we can't accept responsibility for their sin against God. God has already done that in in Christ. However, when we choose to forgive another, there is always some sense in which we are accepting responsibility for the consequences of those sins. This is why forgiveness always has a cost go with it. If you go into our office, Jim has a wooden statue of a fisherman on his desk. He got this from a place called Myanmar. It's a place that is, in case you're wondering, it's a long ways away. Not easy to get there. The the flight there is, is rather long. One day, we had the window open. Jim was gone. I think he left for the day. I decided to shut the window. What do I do? Like, kind of a bumbling around, stumble. I knock this fisherman from Myanmar over onto the ground, and it snaps his hand in the fishing pole off. So now you may not know that it's a fisherman because the fishing pole is no longer attached. Like, this is a wood sculpture that you don't get at Walmart. Like, you can't just go down the street and pick this up. And so when I broke this thing, I, I called and told him, and I'm, I'm hoping that he will forgive me of this debt. Cancel this debt. I have no way of paying this debt. I cannot go to Myanmar and get you another debt. And I think, did you forgive me? Like, do you want to do it publicly so that we all know? We're, we're clear. <laughs> we're good. We've been good for a while. But when Jim forgave me, when he extended forgiveness to me for that, what he was doing was he was absorbing the cost. He is either saying when he does that, I will pay that cost and go to Myanmar and get another one or get it fixed. Or I will just accept the damages as they are. That's what forgiveness was. He is accepting that debt. He is canceling out on my behalf. I couldn't do anything to do anything else to pay for it. And so forgiveness always costs. And it always sounds like a great idea until you understand that it's always going to cost you. It always will cost us something. We offer it freely and yet it costs us. And then all of a sudden it doesn't sound like a good idea anymore. And that's where we're reminded that forgiveness isn't to be given out flippantly. We're not just throwing out forgiveness mindlessly like, Oh, you sinned against us? Sure we forgive you. No, that's not how it goes. Because it costs something. When we forgive, we know it's going to cost. We think about the cost. We count the cost. And then we extend it in light of the cost that's been absorbed for us. 
Sin will always cause pain, will always cause grief. It will probably go deeper than you want. It will destroy more than you want. And so forgiveness is more costly than you can think. It's no walk in the park. It's not just an easy thing to say, let's just be a community of forgiveness. Costs something. But, according to Paul, where there's repentance, extend forgiveness. Turn to forgive. We can't get around it. So what we need to do is avoid the temptations that we have to withhold forgiveness, to be harsh with a brother or sister, to not extend forgiveness where we should, to be unforgiving, is not to be the people of God. C.S. Lewis said, we all agree that forgiveness is a beautiful idea until we have to practice it. Which we think of so often, of so many things in the Scripture. I think of Corrie Ten Boom. You might have heard of her. Corrie Ten Boom was a, a Dutch Christian during World War II. Her and her family worked to resist the Nazi movement. Worked to protect and help the Jews that were hiding out from the Nazis. Indeed, they even hided, hid some Jews in their own house. And they got discovered. They got ratted out. Someone betrayed them and their family. And so they, they got arrested. They knew the cost. They were willing to do it. They got arrested. And, and Corey Timboom, along with her sister, they went to three different camps. And they ended up at this one camp called Ravensbrück, which was close to Berlin. And, and through this horrific concentration camp experience, where her sister dies a slow and agonizing death, Corey Timboom survives... And decides that she wants to go out from there as this Christian and, and tell people what I've learned, what, what God has taught me through this experience. And so you, you might have heard some great quotes from her that, that there's no pit so deep that God's, not, God's love is not deeper still. Or that God will give us the love to be able to forgive our enemies. These are some things that she went out teaching. She went on a speaking tour so that she could share with people like, this is the powerful love of God. This is what can happen when you trust in God. And yet, her love, her forgiveness was tested as she talked. In 1947, she was speaking and teaching at a Munich church. And afterwards, a man stepped forward to greet her. And he was pushing out, holding out his hand to her, extending it for her. And he said to this, a fine message. How good it is to know that as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And we'd be like, yes and amen. Someone's getting the message, right? Our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And he says this. He says, would you forgive me? She goes on, she says this personally. She says, and I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand because she recognized this man. This man was one of the prison guards at Ravensburg. One of the most vicious men that she knew there. One who she was embarrassed by over and over again because she had to walk without clothes in front of this guy while he sits there and, and just... Revels in the the destruction, the the horror that's going on. This is a vicious guard who's extending his hand to her. And she says, I spoke so glibly of forgiveness. And I fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. He would not remember me, of course. How could he? I was one prisoner among thousands of women. But I remembered him. And the leather crop swinging from his belt. And I was face to face with one of my captors. And my blood seemed to freeze, she said. The man mentions to her, he says, You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk. I was a guard there. But since that time, he said, I've become a Christian. And I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things that I did there. But I would like to hear it from your lips as well. Again, he extended his hand. Asking, I've been forgiven. I would love your forgiveness as well. And she says this, I love her honesty. And I stood there. I whose sins had again and again to be forgiven and could not forgive. Betsy, her sister, she says, 
had died in that place? Could He erase her slow and terrible death simply for asking? What Corey Tinboom is doing this moment is counting the cost of forgiveness. My sister died there. I saw other women die there. I endured a ton there. She's counting the cost to extend forgiveness to a man who was a horrific man in the past. And yet she does this. I put out my hand and she said this, I forgive you, brother, with all my heart. And she says this about the experience, I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. But even so, I realized it was not my love. I had tried and did not have the power. It was the power of the Holy Spirit. We all agree that forgiveness is a good idea until we have to practice it. Until we're face to face with the brothers or sisters that caused us harm and grief in the body. That we don't want to bring back in because we know what they've done in the past. It always costs us and it's always a great idea until we understand that we have to practice it as well. And this is what Paul is calling them to. So what Corey Tinboom did when she was extending forgiveness here was displaying this amazing love from God. Love that she says wasn't, didn't come from me, it came from God. There's no way it came from me, I couldn't do it. I wanted to extend my hand, but I knew that I couldn't do it. Only God made me stick out my hand in forgiveness. This was an amazing display of love toward God and love for this man. And Paul is telling us, we must extend this same hand of forgiveness as well. By the power of the Spirit, we are to extend this hand of forgiveness. So as the community takes action against sin, and as the community takes action to forgive the repentant, we are displaying the love of God that He extends to us. God, who doesn't tolerate our sin, He doesn't just let it go. It costs Him something. And yet He forgives sinners freely. God, who is perfectly just and yet perfectly merciful all in the same moment. God, who is in the business of restoration, of confronting sin and restoring sinners. The church is to picture that God. To extend forgiveness, to extend mercy, to care about justice. We don't just let sin slide, but we also extend love and mercy where there's repentance. It's a simple yet really difficult thing for community. Simple in in idea. Turn to forgive the the repentant sinner. That's not a hard concept. Oh, so difficult to practice. Forgive the repentant. And so as the community takes action against sin, and the, the, the sinner turns in repentance, and we are to turn to forgive him, we know that that process, if you've ever been through it at all, you know that's going to be a battle. And indeed, this is exactly how Paul talks about it. This is a battle, and it's much bigger than just an individual. Paul talks about it as a much bigger battle than just against him and another person. He says in, in verse 9, For this is why I wrote, that I might test you to know whether you are obedient in everything. Would they follow through with his instructions to take action as a community against us man? And anyone who you forgive, I also forgive. And indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. Now, Paul wrote a harsh letter to test their obedience to see if they were going to be obedient. And they responded to him. They responded and took the action that they needed to take against this man. But Paul is affirming and reaffirming their actions. If you have forgiven him, I also forgive him. And if I forgive anything, that is also forgiven as well. There's this mutual forgiveness that's going on because of the close-knit community that they have there. But I think even verse 9 and 10, we're getting a hint more and more. And you wouldn't, almost, you wouldn't guess it from Paul because he doesn't seem to be taking this personally. 
But he has been attacked personally. He says, if I've forgiven anything. So it seems as if the attack has been against him. But if I forgive anything, then it has been forgiven. And you also should forgive. So Paul's concern here isn't for himself. It's for the, the whole group. It's for the body. It's bigger than him. And he understands that. And yet he, he opens our gaze even further to the battle that's going on. Because as forgiveness is extended, there's a much bigger battle taking place. Look at verse 11. He says, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. In the community taking action against sin, the community turning and forgiving the repentant brother or sister, is a community that is at battle with Satan. That's what's going on here. This is a battle against the enemy. Satan is a community enemy. And Paul is telling them to, to battle Satan. Battle this one who is the enemy of all community. When discipline leaves, we heard that Christ leaves as well. But we must not fail to exercise discipline where it needs to be. We have to be firm. We have to do this rightly. But one who has turned, who has been cast over from the realm of Satan, who has turned for forgiveness, we welcome them back in. We don't want them to stand outside the protection, the power, the compassion, the forgiveness, the joy, the comfort, the fellowship of community. Where Jesus reigns, where He is Lord. We bring them back in. And so we must not fail as, as much as we don't want to fail church discipline. We don't also want to fail to turn and forgive the forgetting, forgotten, repentant brother. Because this man is in a place that's very dangerous. And we do battle when we turn to forgive him. We do battle against the enemy. The enemy of all community. Failure to restore. Failure to turn to this repentant brother. Plays into his hands, his schemes, and his designs. And it leaves a brother exposed to the enemy. Exposed to his plans. Exposed to his destruction. So both failure to address sin in the community. And failure to restore. They give the enemy a foothold. A foothold that we don't want. Satan is a community enemy. And it says of him that he comes to steal and kill and destroy. Those are not good terms of someone for a body. He is like a lion prowling around it. He would love the chance to devour a sorrowful brother. He would love the chance to destroy one who's isolated by himself. His designs don't include forgiveness. They don't include restoration. They don't include reconciliation. That's Jesus' idea. That's His plan. Those are His designs. That's not Satan's. And so surely He can't like it when it's displayed in community. And so this is what Paul is calling them to do. Battle. Battle against Satan as a community. Battle against him. This is your enemy. Exercise forgiveness and fight against him. Forgiveness frustrates his plans. Frustrates his designs. And he says, so we're not outwitted. I like that. We're not outwitted. You can think about winning or losing a game. There's only a couple variables that it really depends on. You could be outcoached. Or you could be out-executed. Right? I mean, that's boiling it down to two things. Like either your coach isn't as good as the other coach and you got out-coached. So you lose. Or your coach is really good, you didn't get out coached, and you just didn't execute what the coach told you to do. So you lose again. Like, lose, lose. Don't get out coached, don't get out executed. Well, what's the problem when we're battling this enemy who has designs and plans? We're not out coached. Right? Jesus has given us what we need to be sufficient in all that He's called us to. He's given us all that we need to be faithful as a church, faithful as believers. We're not out coached. So the failure doesn't come in coaching here, the failure comes in execution. Paul is calling the church to execute rightly. Battle the enemy. Encouraging the faithful to turn and forgive and battle this one who is an enemy to all community. So when we turn to forgive, we're battling the enemy. We're on the front lines just by forgiving. 
You as a believer, you're on the front lines against the enemy by forgiving your brothers and sisters. So to fail, to forgive, to comfort, to love, to restore the repentant is to let the enemy slip by. As you're on watch, the enemy has slipped by. It will only steal, kill, and destroy. And so the question then needs to be, are there people out there that we need to turn to forgive? That we need to comfort? That we need to turn and make sure we reaffirm our love for them, lest they be overwhelmed with sorrow. Maybe you've been thinking about people in your mind. I think it's real easy to start thinking like, is my spouse, we at odds here? Is there something I need to forgive there that might be spreading over to community because we haven't forgiven one another? Or maybe our children... What can we do to forgive? What can we do to comfort? What can we do to turn and reaffirm love for them? For the preservation of that body and of that person who's turned from their sin, we must turn to forgive. And here's the thing. We're in community and not because that we earned it or deserved it, but because someone forgave us. And not just talking about one another talking about God Himself, the one who we've ultimately sinned against. And so as we take action against sin, as we turn to forgive the repentant brother, as we battle Satan, let's not forget our own story. Because our story is that someone took action on our behalf to forgive our sin. Someone extended forgiveness to us when we didn't deserve it and could never earn it. Someone turned to comfort us. Someone turned to love us. Someone turned and defeated our enemy and His name is Jesus. And we are the body of Jesus. He is our head. And the community is based upon and empowered by Jesus. He is our firm foundation. And so as a community, we need to reflect Him. As His body, may we be reflecting the head and taking our commands from Him. So sin is a community problem that must be addressed. Forgiveness is this community responsibility that must be given. And Satan is this community enemy that must be battled. But Jesus is the one we long to honor. And He is the one who receives glory when we practice these things faithfully before Him. It's His body. We're His church. We want to be faithful and a glory to Him. Let's be resolved, as Paul has called the Corinthians, to turn to forgive repentant brothers in battle against the enemy so that we as a community could really resemble and image and glory our Savior. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for extending forgiveness to us when we didn't deserve it. In fact, God, it's pretty clear that we would never deserve it. And we would never receive it unless you freely extended it out to us. And so we thank you for Christ. The one who absorbed the cost that we should have paid. That we deserve to pay. He absorbed it willingly so that we might go free. We want to thank you for that. And we want to pray that we as a body would be committed to doing the same thing that Christ has done for us. That where people, where brothers and sisters who may have harmed us deeply and caused much grief and pain. Where they've turned from their sin. God, may we extend forgiveness freely. May we understand our forgiveness in You and extend that kind of forgiveness to others. I want to pray for our body that You would keep us one. You would continue to help us be one, a unity. And that You would work against any plans of the, of the enemy that would seek to divide and destroy. And Father, we know that we can 
be a means to that grace to other people just by turning to forgive. Help us, empower us, send us forth to forgive other brothers and sisters. And God, in doing that, may you receive the glory, may your church be triumphant, and may you be praised over and over again as the Lamb who has slain, who has won this bride, who has bought this bride by His own blood, and may that bring you much glory and honor forevermore. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.